I was extremely surprised to find out this week that in the mid-1990s, according to a BBC survey, When I Am an Old Woman, I Shall Wear Purple was the most popular post-war poem in Britain, and then 10 years later, it was still the most popular post-war poem in Britain. And I was surprised because while the poem can apparently obviously capture the imagination, it turns out upon revisitation to not be a very good poem. I was also surprised to learn that the BBC does so many surveys about what people's favorite post-war poem is, like every 10 years. Anyway, the book was not a collection of work by Jenny Joseph. She's the author behind the poem that's actually called Warning, the poem that starts with the line, when I'm an old woman, I shall wear purple. The book was an anthology of poems and short stories and photographs by a bunch of different people about women aging, which makes it a weird but not a radical choice for me to request as a high school graduation present from my church. My dad, our pastor, had asked what I'd like, a book I'd be interested in maybe, something the church could give me as a high school graduation gift. And I guess I must have seen it in a bookstore like, how else would I have encountered it pre-internet, you know? I didn't even listen to NPR then. It seemed like it was probably in the right, right price range for a small gift, and I didn't think twice about telling Dad that that is the book I would like. Sometime later, my dad sought me out to explain that our church couldn't purchase the book for me. He had found out that some of the content was about lesbians. Or maybe just one, just one of the stories? I looked at the book this week and wondered, how did he figure it out? Like the table of contents doesn't give anything away. You have to flip through to find that the story Two Willow Chairs comes out in its first sentence about how a photo of the titular chairs is actually a lesbian portrait. Did my dad flip through this book? Am I misremembering? Or Maybe it wasn't just that there was lesbian content, but also that the book talks about sex. And I mean, flipping back through it this week, the book talks a little bit about sex, like in ways that, if surveyed about it, the entire population of Britain would find pop, you know, palatable. Like, here's the thing. I knew that my church and my parents, I knew that they thought it was wrong to be gay or they thought it was wrong to act on it. I knew that they had very specific ideas about sex and sexual morality. What was news to me was that they thought it was so wrong that, and here, when I was writing, I, I stopped and kind of stumbled. What was news to me was that they thought it was so wrong that, <laughs> what? They thought it was so wrong that my church needed to distance itself even from a book with a story in it about lesbians or at least about their chairs? It was so wrong that to give me such a book would be, like what, to endorse lesbianism or to like encourage me on the lesbian path? Or, or I just truly can't even imagine it anymore. What was news to me was that when the book was deemed inappropriate, I, who did not understand myself to be a lesbian, would nonetheless feel a creeping embarrassment bordering on shame. Obviously, our sermon series this Pride Month, Say Anything, is inspired by the regressive and harmful bills like the one already signed into law in Florida. 
laws that opponents, like me, for example, called don't say gay bills. Opponents have gathered to protest uh, and added to the standard protest chants uh, is this say gay, say gay, which I find kind of too short to really work as a chant. Like it's kind of, it's kind of hard to like get your breath up under it. And it also sounds like basic. Like we're gonna gather out here and make signs and chant I mean, but here we are, chanting, protesting for something extremely basic, extremely basic rights. And so here we are as a congregation trying to stake a claim, again, for some extremely basic rights and Christian truths. Here I am saying clearly, explicitly, at least some of what hasn't been said in church or doesn't get said uh, enough in church or hasn't gotten said soon enough to help save the lives of people lost to botched abortions or suicide, or hasn't gotten said loud enough for the people in the back, or loud enough for the people who have heard about the church from outside the church, only that they are not welcome. Loud enough for people who have heard only that their stories are not welcome, that some part of who they are is actually unspeakable. Paul's metaphor for the body was not new. It was already old when he used it, and the people in Corinth listening to his letter read out loud during church, maybe in one of their homes, maybe outside sharing a meal. Some of them had come fresh from the synagogue, and others were Roman citizens, and others were enslaved people, and others were people who used to be enslaved. Those people, hearing this letter, would have found this metaphor just about as recognizable as we do the rhythms of it familiar. Like even the reader's tendency to try to play up the whimsical parts. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? Ha, like church funny even in the first century. <laughs> like not new, not radical, even then. It's just Paul who somewhere else in the letter sort of kind of grossly insists on calling himself their father. It's just Paul making dad jokes. The people listening knew him, and they knew this metaphor. I, the ear, yeah, it's weird enough. <laughs> Maybe some of the people in Corinth, like some of the people here, had good reason to be suspicious of this old metaphor. After all, Paul was writing this to a pretty diverse group of people, people who were experiencing some disagreements among themselves and some differentiation from their father, Paul, and at the very beginning of the letter, in chapter 1, Paul appealed to them by the name of Jesus that they should all be in agreement and that there should be no divisions among them and that they should be united in the same mind and in the same purpose. And maybe some of them, like maybe some of us here, thought, oh, sure, unity, accord. I've heard that. Don't stir up any trouble. Just hold your tongue. I've heard it, Paul. Same old, same old. Maybe some of them, like some of us, were used to people preaching civility and peace and agreement as a means of silencing opposition, silencing resistance, erasing important difference. So that they knew, that was old. What was weird, at the very least, was Paul's insistence that in the body, in this old metaphor, in the church, there is no hierarchy. 
in the ancient pre-existing metaphor, everyone knew, obviously, there's a hierarchy. That was part of the metaphor. The brain is clearly more important than the appendix. Like, we still don't think the appendix does anything. The metaphor was inherently about the relative value of every part. And often, I won't say always, because how could I know, but often, the metaphor included the idea that the parts, therefore, ought to be satisfied with their role as an appendix, as an ear. Let the brain, let the heart, let the lungs, let the important parts do their thing. And you, you just do your little thing and stay quiet for the sake of the whole. Unity. Accord. Peace. But here's Paul. Even Paul, who maybe not many of us here think of as a radical, saying, no, there is no hierarchy. There is difference. There is distinction. There is diversity. But all these parts are interdependent. Here's Paul saying that each part, each member, each person with their varieties of activities, this is from earlier in chapter 12, each have been given their nature, their gifts, their roles for the common good that each person, each part of the metaphor, has been given their particularities by the Holy Spirit, that same Pentecostal Holy Spirit. What's new for the people gathered there in Corinth, and maybe weird and maybe even radical even for us here, is that Paul isn't making an argument for diversity. He's making an argument from diversity. It's a given for Paul, for the Corinthians, for us, what's new and weird and radical is that what is inherent in this metaphor now is the life-saving dad joke that for the thriving of individuals and the community, all parts of the body are important. All are necessary, all are distinct, and all have their part to play. Even the appendices, whichever ones of us turn out to be the appendix. I assume at different times we're all the appendix. Like, what am I doing here? I wrote down, let's not get carried away, it's just a metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) On the day of Pentecost, that morning when some of the early Jesus followers might have still been hungover from Shavuot celebrations, what happened is that the Holy Spirit grabbed hold of them and filled them with God's own breath. Their lungs full, they started telling it like they knew it in a particular way, in particular and varied languages. And what happened is that people just walking by heard them and were struck by hearing something they could understand, something that sounded like home, their own mother tongues. It wasn't a new story. It wasn't a new God, not a new spirit. The spirit had been with God, with the word from the very beginning. The Spirit had been among and upon the people for millennia already. But then, like now, people needed new translations because people found themselves always in new circumstances and needed to be able to hear it in a way that they could understand. Communities needed to be able to know that the Spirit was theirs also. Corinth was actually a relatively new community. It was destroyed in 146 BCE. It was rebuilt and repopulated by Julius Caesar because it was a good location for business. The diversity there was a kind of experiment, a mashup of unlike people and unlike demographics trying to figure it out. 
and the Jesus followers among them trying to figure out how to live this new expression, this new translation of the spirit, and Paul trying to figure out how to talk about it, right? Like, what if I call myself your father? Is that helpful? Bethany is a relatively young community. At 127 years old, we're younger than Corinth was when Paul visited. And we're a very new community, a huge number of us here gathered only within the last five years. And we are living in new circumstances. Again, a time when identities that went unspoken have been rendered explicit and then again deemed unspeakable. New circumstances in which abortion, for example, medical care that for millennia was the private purview of midwives and pregnant people, it's been politicized began to be illegal only in the 1850s in the US, deemed illegal everywhere here by 1910 and thereby made dangerous and secret and unspeakable new circumstances. And the same spirit, that same Pentecostal spirit is filling our lungs with God's breath to tell what we know. If we are the body of Christ, a metaphor so old that it sounds more dad joke than radical, if we are the body of Christ, then to live as church in a way that silences parts of the body is wrong. To live as though there is still an inherent hierarchy of worth among people is unchristian, unchristlike. To call some people weaker and some stories less honorable and some identities less respectful, res respectable and that means their silence, that is wrong and misses the gospel. The gospel that is for and lived out through the whole body of Christ. For so long in places like the ones that I grew up, less honorable parts of the body meant something shameful. It meant the parts that we clothed with greater modesty. The opposite was exposure and shame. But we are a new community, always, with new members, always, with new parts and a variety of activities, living in new circumstances, always. And we need more translations of the life-saving truth that the Spirit of God is among and upon us and animates our whole life together filling up our lungs with God's breath and 